Welcome back. This is the second hour of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett. All out struggles for truth are my forte. I've been doing this on the internet airwaves since 2006 on several different networks, currently broadcasting live on revolution.radio. You can help support this kind of no-holds-barred free speech broadcasting by way of revolution.radio. And my own stuff is available through truthjihad.com. I also publish at the Crescent International Veterans Today, uh, American Free Press, and the UNS Review, unz.com. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today with Apollonius, who's a commenter over at UNS, or he has been, and Brian Rue, who is a fellow radio host here at Revolution Radio. He's on Tuesday, 6 to 8 p.m. I forget which time zone that is. Tuesday evenings, anyway. And he may be the world's leading Buddhist Nazi ufologist. Uh, I'm just kidding. But no, seriously, uh, Brian has got some very interesting views that he's not afraid to express forthrightly, and he takes all kinds of flack for it. So rather than giving him flack, I would rather hear what he has to say. And likewise with Apollonius. Uh, so let's get going here. Hey, uh, Brian, how are you? I'm doing good, Kevin. Great to hear you again. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, yeah. Good to have you back. All right. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been years since we're on each other's shows, so it's nice to be back. Yeah, yeah, time time flies when you're having a great time during the COVID <laughs> pandemic. Uh, yeah. So, okay, Apollonius, should I call you Apo? Are you there, Apo? It's actually Apollonian. Apollonian. Apo, Apollonian. Yeah, Apollonian. Apo. Ap. Happy. <laughs> yeah, Apo is Isn't Apo the store owner in The Simpsons? No, that's Apu. Okay. Uh, Ap, so Apo, I'll just call you Apo. <laughs> sure. Okay. All right. So um, I'm not even sure where to start. I know that this whole thing got started when you emailed me and had very strong feelings about Satanism, uh, the economist Michael Hudson, and the Uns Review's uh, editor and publisher, Ron Uns. And I don't know where to start. Satanism, I suppose. Uh, yeah, Satanism would be a good place because Brian has his very interesting religious background. Uh, to, so he'll, have, I'm sure, have a different view. So, so Apo, uh, tell us about Satanism. Okay, well, uh, Satanism is, uh, when you analyze it, it's extreme subjectivism. If you want to be a technical philosoph- philosophical, okay, but uh, as we know from, uh, you know, just like regular religion, sa- Satan thought he was God, see? And, you know, so he thinks he's God. And uh, what he says is uh, what's true, and uh, reality is what what he uh, makes it out to be, right? Satan Satanism is uh, imagining, pretending that you're God, and yeah. you create reality, and whatever you say is what the truth is. Okay, and so that is actually what the Jews say, uh, beginning with the Torah, right? The Torah is the first five books of the of the Old Testament. All right, and uh, so the Jews, according to their oral law tradition, they say that um, the Torah means nothing but what the rabbis say it means. It's like communism, you know, and um, then uh, all the Jews collect... How's it like communism? Well, uh, the Torah means only what the top you know, the rabbis say it means. Right, okay. How is that like communism? Well, communism is, uh, it's like democratic socialism. It means that, uh, 
when, you know, the the Politburo at the top, the leaders at the top uh, say, you know, the, what has to be and what we should all do. Well, everybody else goes along because well, that's. Apple, let me give you a, a different perspective on that. I, I, I agree with you, actually, about Satanism. Uh, your definition, I thought, was pretty lucid. But communism, I think, is it, it may have some satanic elements. But the but basically that the outlook of communism is what's called dialectical materialism. And belief in materialism is that they believe that there's this material reality that is foremost and that what human beings think about it is only secondary. So it's actually you're not creating reality if you're a communist. On the contrary, you're saying that all the other human beings with all these other beliefs, ideologies and religions kind of think that they're creating a reality. But the fact is that it's actually the material world and then the material relations of production that grew out of that material world that determine the way they think and stuff. So there's really very little free thought or ability to create your own anything in communism. Okay. Well, um, hey, I like that definition. Thank you, Kevin. I've never heard that before. It makes sense. <laughs> well, I mean, well just, just go read your Marx. It's, it's right. It's right there. Yeah. <laughs> well, Marx, um, he was, uh, as I understand, you know, from what I've read about Marx, he was quite a Satanist himself. And um, so what I was talking about was, uh, you know, what they call democratic socialism, uh, wherein uh, the the communists can have their individual uh, opinions on things. But when the uh, communist leaders and, you know, the the top communists all get together and they figure out what what has to be done. Well, all the other, you know, the other communists, well, they. They go along with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's a kind of a, a extreme authoritarianism, top down uh, governance, right, taken to an extreme. But, and, yeah, and well, that, yeah, that would be true of monarchies and, and and dictatorships too, to a certain extent. Yeah, it's it's like total dictatorship, but that's uh, what communism turns out to be: practical, scientific uh, socialism, communism. That's how uh, it's. Uh, that's how it works, uh, as we know from history, from, you know, Stalin and the history of Mao Zedong and, um, well, from history in general. But anyway, OK, so you've got this Satanism and you've got uh, which is extreme subjectivism because uh, subjectivism is uh, is uh, consciousness creating reality and uh so so that means uh it's whatever you say it's whatever uh it's whatever you want it to be subjectivism uh, right. well, well, would you agree that s- satanic subjectivism would be saying that sort of my consciousness creates reality i am all powerful or i aspire to be all powerful whereas um a religious viewpoint uh would be that yes consciousness creates reality but ultimately all reality is created by god god is the consciousness that creates reality um, yeah. OK. But uh, Satanism is extreme subjectivism, wherein, you know, uh, consciousness creates reality as as according to uh, Immanuel Kant. Yeah, so I'm, human consciousness. then. Yeah. Uh, human consciousness uh, creates reality. And um, OK, the Jews uh, are a, a collectivistic group 
of subjectivists, and uh, they're ruled by the rabbis according to the oral law tradition. Okay, and so uh, once the uh, the rabbis decide what is the way to go, all the other Jews they uh, go along, or else they're what, not. What about the saying that like two Jews, three opinions? That they all argue all the time. Even the rabbis are arguing all the time. That's just a joke. Um, the, see, they they say that, and it, it it's probably true to a certain extent about you know various different things. But when it comes down to a political commitment as to how they're going to act vis-a-vis the Gentiles, well, then you have that same democratic socialism again. The, all the Jews are, you know, they they uh, they pull along um, in a collectivistic manner. The Jews are notoriously collectivistic. Um, Wouldn't you just call that like tribalism, ethnocentrism, nepotism, that sort of thing? Sure, ethnocentrism. That that sounds uh, quite fitting. Yeah, I, yeah. I know Lauren Guyanot, who wrote from Yahweh to Zion, which I translated from French. Uh, says that Jews are the most ethnocentric group um, on earth. Of course, I don't know if he's looked at every single one of the maybe five or six thousand cultures on earth, but I think uh, so. Could be right. I think that's true. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so, and, and we're, it's, isn't it ironic, though, that in a culture here in the United States in which uh, liberal uh, Jews and, and, and wealthy Jews have uh, unusual power compared to the numbers of the Jewish population, and that the liberal ideology seems to be dominant, and it is disproportionately affected by uh, by Jewish Americans who tend to be liberal, well-educated, and have a certain voice in the culture, that that uh, ethnocentrism is considered to be really bad, right? Uh, and they seem to be endlessly worried about the ethnocentrism, especially of let's say white Americans with the you know white Americans movement, but they're basically the liberal ideology is against ethnocentrism. So how how can it be that a super ethnocentric group has disproportionate power and yet has become liberal and anti ethnocentric? What is that a paradox or not? Um, it's paradoxical because you know, of the element of deception and double talk, double speak. See. Um, Liberalism, as you may know, I'm sure you you know uh, a good deal about this, uh, Mr. Barrett, is uh, nowadays liberalism is just a buzzword for fascism. That's all socialist. It's socialism. It's not liberal at all in the sense of liberty, you know, meaning freedom. Um, Okay. Uh, And when you, you know, it's a buzzword. And when you when you speak of uh, these liberals, what they really are is they're subjectivists. Uh, and what they do is they intrude their idea of good. And uh, now what they consider to be good as opposed to evil, both of those are, um, you know, they don't exist because there's no definition uh, that works, that fits, uh, you know, the, the word liberal. I mean, excuse me, um, let's see, uh, good and evil. Okay, there's no definition that fits. There's, you know, that fits in all uh, cases, in all situations. You know, no one can, and that's been known uh, throughout history by philosophers and just uh, general knowledge. You you can uh, immediately, uh, you know, destroy any 
conversation about good evil by simply asking, well, what is good and what is evil? There's no uh, criterion that works uh, for all so, so, situations. So you're, you're saying this. You're not saying the liberals say this, but you're, you're saying that there's no overarching uh, good and evil. Right. I'm just pointing that out. I'm observing. Well, I, I would disagree with you, actually. I, uh, I, I know Leo Strauss, who's a Satanist, would agree with you. In fact, his whole philosophy was built on that. But I would argue that the classical tradition, as it's normally understood by 99 percent of the people who study it, as opposed to the Straussians, is that there is, in fact, uh, good and evil. Uh, there, there is uh, virtue and vice and that the platonic dialogues and other classical sources that uh, deal with this should be are, are best understood as uh, upholding, if not always with, with perfect clarity and force, the notion that indeed there is an abstract virtue and vice, uh, abstract uh, good and, and evil. Now, Leo Strauss, of course, the Satanist, said there isn't. And he, he, he said that in these dialogues that purport to be about uh, good and evil, virtue and vice, that they actually, that Plato or Aristotle, whoever wrote them, uh, actually was a secret Satanist and knew that there is no such thing as good or evil, that there's no God, no devil, no metaphysical, anything that we're basically, you know, just here and then we die and it doesn't matter what we do. So we might as well be evil because if we're evil, if we're good on the outside, pretending to be good, but evil on the inside, we'll enjoy the best of both worlds because everybody thinks we're good. So we get all the strokes from our friends and all the other people around us. But deep down inside, we're so bad, we're able to sneak around stealing stuff, killing, doing anything, transcending the stupid morality. And we become supermen who uh, enjoy the goods of this world. We become wealthy and we become powerful and yet people admire us. So that's essentially Strauss, Strauss's philosophy. Uh, it's a satanic philosophy. He was a self-professed teacher of evil. And it's all based on the idea that there really is no such thing as good or evil, virtue or vice, that those are just myths to sell to the roops. And so I, I'm not understanding how you can be an anti-Satanist, but you say there's no such thing as good or evil. But Mr. Barrett, you're you're not uh, giving a definition with a clear uh, criterion by which you can say this is good and okay this over here this is evil there's you no write the socratic dialogue here on my radio show <laughs> well uh, I, I think i was just talking about the definite how do you define good and evil i think that's what apollonian's saying he didn't yeah, say there's no good how he's saying we can't define it yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, of course, in the Socratic dialogues. That's that's a problem. And you can interpret that problem as being you, you can even interpret the dialogue as telling us, as Strauss says, that there really is no such thing as good or evil, which means ultimately you might as well just do whatever, do whatever you like. And what you like is probably going to be very selfish and nasty. Uh, that's one interpretation. And then the other interpretation, which most uh, almost the whole Western tradition takes, is that, in fact, this in the Socratic dialogue that's sort of poking at this notion of good and evil, that actually Socrates is disabusing those people who have a, a too simplistic vision of it into a more comprehensive vision of the larger good and evil. And ultimately, there's an abstract platonic ideal of good, an abstract platonic ideal of evil, just as there's a there's a God uh, who is the ultimate good. But if there is an abstract ideal, what is it? What is the essence of it? What is the actual 
specific criterion for it. You're not saying it, Mr. Barron. You, Barrett, you're just talking around it. That's all you're doing. You're you're um, asserting that it exists, but you're not saying what it is. You see? Yes, yes. That's the, well, that's the point that comes out in these Socratic dialogues. And to my mind, actually, I think that the actual experience of the of pure goodness, which is God is something that only mystics can experience. Now, we're all mystics, just, just like we're all a little bit psychic. All of us have precognitive dreams. Uh, if, if you write down your dreams every morning carefully, you're, you'll find within a few weeks a bunch of strikingly precognitive material. We're all psychic, okay? We're also, uh, we're all mystics. That is, we all have these moments where we get uh, a little closer to God, where we have a taste of ultimate reality, ultimate truth, and ultimate goodness. And that's, you might say, well, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And then I could say, well, here are all these techniques that you could use to try to actually have that experience. You could do uh, Salat, the Muslim five times daily prayer, and try to just focus on God totally while you're doing it. Or you could do a different meditative tradition. Um, and ultimately, if you do these things assiduously, you actually will experience what ultimate goodness is to some extent anyway. Okay, well, you're, you just continue to talk around it, and you don't say, you don't give the essence, you don't give a clear criterion. See, and, um, okay, so you see, the, the problem is that this idea of good remains subjective. You could say, you know, one thing, but how can you prove that? You see what I mean? And well, how could anybody prove anything? I mean, even in empirical science, if you, you know, tell me that there's this experiment that proves there's something called gravity where you let go of a rock at, you know, two feet off the ground and it always goes straight down and hits the ground. And I say, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, we say, well, do it. Pick up the rock. And I refuse to pick up the rock. Or, you know, if you're Galileo and you tell me to look at the moons of Jupiter through the telescope and I refuse to pick up the telescope, I'm not going to see the moons of Jupiter and I'm not going to understand gravity. Likewise, if you're not going to do the meditation, you're not going to understand God and the good. It's that simple. Okay, look, you asked the question, how do you prove something in, uh, in empirical science? Okay, and the way you prove things is... For what you're proving is a theory, is something in the abstract. And the way it is proven is uh, by observation, by means of the senses. That's what proof consists of in empirical science. Uh, if you say, uh, you know, well, uh, it's daylight outside. Well, you walk outside and um, you, you see the sun shining. Or if you say the sun is shining. Well, you walk outside and you see the daylight and you see the sun shining. Okay. Uh, the abstract is, uh, demonstrated by the, uh, sense, the sense perception. That's what, that's how Aristotle, uh, originally, um, you know, described it. That's the scientific. Yeah, that's, that's the rational process. empirical scientific method. You're right. Okay. And I would agree that that method will not find the good which is why that method has extreme limitations, and it's only one useful tool. It's not even the most useful tool. The meditation and, prayer I was describing to you is a much more useful tool, tool for finding truth than the scientific empirical method is. Well, uh, what what kind of a truth are you talking about? Is it something that can be, you know, there's something that can be proven by science, which means 
uh, proof according to sense perception. That's what we mean when we say proof. Um, there's cir- a lot circular reasoning. Proof. You're saying proof is what I say it is, and what I say it is is proof. And yeah, you're right, it is. But there's other stuff out there that is outside of that whole realm. Okay, well, we we ought to move on from this discussion, Mister <laughs> okay. Mister Barrett, because you know you can imagine. We should give Brian a chance to to comment too, Brian. Yeah, I, I thought questions? Apollonian. I thought Apollonian was going to actually define what do you think good is and what do you think evil is. Did you want to define it yourself, Apollonian? Oh no, uh, uh, Brian, because there is no uh, good or evil, uh, because there's no criterion that I could use to persuade you. Um, it, oh, okay, you know, I see. It, yeah. Good is what I want. Good is you doing as I tell you to do. Then you're good. That's what it means uh, when the moms and dads say that their children are good boys and bad boys, good girls and bad girls, because they're obedient. They do what they're told. See, that's that's what it means. Look, there, wh- my dog, my dog went and excremented on the living room uh, rug. That's well, a bad dog because I got a bad cat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, well I, we all know that in ordinary language, the words good, bad, evil, and so on are used subjectively. I wouldn't try to argue yes. against that. As an empirical truth, you're right. That's how these words are often used. But that doesn't mean that there isn't such a thing as actual reality of ultimate good, ultimate evil. And it doesn't okay, also but, doesn't mean that the fact that when some people say, oh, this is good or this is bad, uh, they're wrong. That is, there is an actual uh, objective truth of what's good and what isn't. And when people use these words subjectively, sometimes they're right and sometimes they aren't. Well, it's always subjective. If if I say that this is good and we, which we often do, you know, I use that um you know, in practical everyday conversation, this is good. Well, that's bad, but it's because um, I understand, you know, that we're we're sharing a similar or a, a very same uh, premise, um, you know, upon which now we're arguing, right? And um, well, um, okay, we can we can agree that uh, murder. Murder is bad. Why? Well, because it destroys the society, and the society is what we both want to preserve, right? A rational, you know, peaceful type of a society, right? Well, so I, I can, think there's no, no. I think there's a much deeper reason why murder is bad, and you know, yes, reading, but that's subjective. No, I, I think you'll learn more about the objective reason why murder is bad by reading Dostoevsky's *Crime and Punishment* and maybe the brothers Karamazov. Than you will okay. from any uh, any empirical rational sources. Anyway, uh, Mr. Barrett, okay, Christianity holds that you know uh, things are determined in a deter- that is at least insofar as our sinful natures. Right, we're self-interested. That's the way God made us. There's nothing that can change it, and um, that's why we're sinners. We okay? can't change it. Well, how did the saints change it then? They didn't. They were just honest, and that's why they're called saints. Because they were honest about it, um, you know, they were very careful as to how they acted, you know, regarding it, right? And so they were honest about it. That's why we say people are good, because they're honest. And um, they're honest because they think that's the best way uh, to conduct yourself. You know, that's the best uh, understanding of self-interest. And... And self-interest 
um, vis-a-vis social conduct, social relations. You know, if we were all honest, well, gosh, we'd all get along a lot better. Okay, um, but uh, in Christianity, I, I can assure you that we're all sinners and there is nothing, nothing whatsoever we can do to change or not be sinners, not to be self-interested. Can we be and, a little bit less sinful? Like, you know, if, if you're, if, if let's say, you know, you're, you're a hard, hard drinker who goes out and gets in fights, makes people very unhappy, comes home, mistreats your family. Is it possible you could maybe curtail a little bit of that sinning? Sure, but that okay. doesn't mean you're good, and it doesn't mean you're less evil. Because those are meaningless. They're subjective. You know, there's no clear criterion that, um, you know, makes any sense. That so, 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 Apple, are, are you a Christian? Yes, of course. Okay. Um, interesting. So what, what are you from a particular school of thought? Well, I, I'm, um, you know, just a basic Christian following from the, new te- the text of the New Testament. And, okay, Christ is explicitly understood as truth itself. You see, uh, Christianity doesn't require anyone to believe that there was actually some guy named Jesus, you know, who was then called the Christ, you know, because that's just an idea. And uh, Jesus himself, the character, is just a placeholder. He's a, you know, he's a personality of literature. And that's what... uh, you know, New I think so. I agree with that. I don't. I don't think he historically existed, according to the evidence. Yeah, and he doesn't have to have existed. You see, it's still effective, magnificent, yeah. outstanding literature all by yeah. itself. It's not. It doesn't have to be uh, absolute, exact historical. You know, uh, representation. Yeah, I agree it's, with that. Yeah, it's just literature, no less than um, all the Old Testament legends are. They don't know, you know, anything about uh, Abraham or Moses. They just have all these stories, right? And those stories are good enough. And uh, that's what Christ upheld against the Pharisees, you know, who uh, came along in the third to second centuries B.C. and introduced this oral law tradition, wherein, you know, The rabbis were the communist leaders of their party, and then all the other Jews, Jews defined as followers of the Pharisees, and then later of the Talmud, right? Okay, you know, they collectivistically enforce and acted in accordance uh, therewith. So, 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 um, so, you know, I'm trying to sort of bounce this off of Brian's perspective. I would imagine, Brian, you would agree with this to many, to a big extent, with this critique of the Jewish tribal tradition or the Jewish ideology. Um, but I don't know if yeah. you, would you, do you, you do agree with this idea of innate sinfulness that can never change because in Buddhism, I mean, isn't you, you wake up to the noble truths and then you end up recognizing, right? That, that uh, life is suffering and that's the uh, desire is the root of suffering and that it's, it's possible to be non-attached in terms of desire and thereby transcend suffering or, uh, or we, you know, stop suffering. And so there is this quote unquote spiritual growth that happens in Buddhism, just like in, in Islam, as I see it, all of the teachings of Islam are really about 
sort of maximizing everybody's spiritual growth or potential for spiritual growth because ultimately it's still a, a free choice and people have the free choice to continue to wallow in the mud of rational empirical materialism uh, and, and greed and selfishness and sin. But they had also not only have the choice, but God is, is calling them to be better. And the saints who become saintly, uh, who've left behind this sin, uh, you know, and the, and the great mystics of the Christian church who taught other people how to do this, people like Meister Eckhart, uh, are, are like the Buddhists who, who taught people how to let go of these sinful desires and uh, achieve a state of non-attachment. Well, yeah, uh, I can comment on that. Like, yeah, go ahead. yeah I, I don't believe that we're inherently sinful from from a Buddhist view, but I, I've had uh, Apollonia on his guest several times. I, I agree with him about the extreme subjectivism of the Jews, that they decide what is the very nature of reality. Like, today, history is something invented by the Jews, like the history of, say, 9-11 or the Kennedy assassination. They create history for us, so... The, I agree with his, his views on the extreme subjectivism of the Jews. I, I like I like that. Um, yeah, but I, I don't think we're inherently sinful. It's possible through spiritual effort to attain full and complete enlightenment. Okay. Well, interesting well, interfaith dialogue here. Uh, you know, we're, we're halfway through the hour, uh, Apo, and I, I wondered if you wanted to move on a little bit to, like, apparently you – I uh, have a very strong disagreement with Michael Hudson, who you think is a communist or a Marxist, who's published at the UNS Review. And I actually like and agree with Michael Hudson. So tell me why I'm wrong. OK, uh, but first, let me just say one thing to uh, to Brian. Brian, we're we're sinners. And that word sinning is um, it's a, a metaphor. OK, um, we're sinful to the extent that we're self-interested, you see, yeah. and. So it's used, the word sin and sinful is used metaphorically. We're, we're sinful to the extent that we're self-interested. There's no other way we can be because that uh, uh, self-interest is the way God created us. That's the basic uh, essence of our being. We're self-interested. Okay. Okay. To see if we see if we could get past that. I mean, God gave us the sinful nature of self-interestedness precisely so that we could choose uh, to do the right thing, which is to submit to God in Islam and practice non-attachment and become well, more and more saintly if we can. Well, we submit to, uh, you know, the will of God uh, by accepting and understanding that we're sinners. We are self-interested, and there is nothing whatsoever we can do about that. See, this is where I, I think that sounds more like Satanism than than, than uh, Christianity. No, Satanism. Satanism means your creator. You're that you become God. That you're the real God. On on the contrary, we are. Uh, I guess like uh, Islamists, we submit to the will of God. We're sinners. We are self-interested. There is no other way we can exist. You There's think God, no other... God wants you to keep sinning? No, not sinning, but uh, we have to be uh, we have to be according to our nature, which is uh, self-interested. The only way we can temper that is by means of reason. And that's that, you know, godly, uh, you know, element uh, that tempers uh, our, our self-interest is by being rational. And that is um, what uh, John Locke uh, agreed to. John Locke. Uh, Thomas Hobbes, you know, the only way we can uh, uh, temper 
our self-interest is by means of reason and and thus achieve a rational egoism as uh, as i think uh locke explicitly you know made it you know we can be rational as, as rational as possible and so i just wanted to make that note for uh, brian about you know sinfulness and what sin actually really means okay um brian did you have something to say no no we can carry on Okay, so 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 getting to this question of Michael Hudson, because I know I think you first contacted me, Apo, around some uh, uns review comment battles, and uh, you you really didn't like the work of Michael Hudson, and and I do, and I'll, uh, for me, Michael Hudson's work is very much in line with my both you know rational analysis of how the world works and and my uh, religious understanding, which of course also is in line with rational analysis. So that's how I got to my religious understanding and the basic notion of usury uh, or riba, we call it in Islam is crucial to understanding uh, the test that we're undergoing in terms of our economic behavior. Everything in life is a divine test and God is basically challenging us to either be sinful. That is to just say, Oh, you know, to, to, to not struggle against our sinfulness or to actually work against the sinfulness and, practice non-attachment and ultimately become better people. That's what we're here for is that is to undergo that test. And so the the greed that we all feel, you know, all of us would love to get something for nothing. And that's what usury is. It's have using money to make money without actually having to produce anything for it. And because of compound interest and exponential mathematics, Whoever practices usury ends up sucking up all the money out of the system and all the people who are actually producing something end up with nothing. And that's obviously unjust or evil. You know, you don't need to be uh, Plato or whoever to, to understand that that is not justice. So uh, in Islam, we're, we're asked to basically be at war with usury that the prophet and uh, God and his prophet and by extension, the followers of the prophet are at eternal war with usury. And I think Michael Hudson gets this exactly right. He sees that there is this parasitical rentier elite living off of usury in a broad sense. That is using money to make money. And these parasites who have accumulated these huge fortunes and are in a position to make money much easier because they have these huge fortunes that they can use to manipulate the markets. These people are sucking all the wealth out of the system while the hardworking folks on Main Street and the factory owners who have to actually organize their factories and the foremen and all the actual productive people, the plumbers and the, and the, you know, the wood choppers and, and all of the, the actual workers are getting screwed over. And yeah, you want to call this Marxism? Well, then Marx was right about that, at least. You know, Marx was right about a lot of things. He said money is the god of the Jews. He was right about that. Uh, so. Michael Hudson is is a great uh, holy, you know, the, the the holiest of the current economists. He is one of the great prophets of the eternal war on usury, and so I think you're completely misunderstanding him. And I don't understand why you don't like it. No, no, I I assure you, I am not misunderstanding him. Okay, but I have to admit that I'm an Austrian. That is, I espouse the Austrian school of economics. At, uh, for example, you can uh, check into that at Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G. And, um, you know, Ludwig von Mises was, uh, was a great expositor of the Austrian school, which was founded by uh, Karl Menger. 
Okay. But, um, okay. As far, so from that point of view, uh, I assure you, Mr. Barrett, um, Hudson is much, much more of a Keynesian or a socialist. I mean, that's their, you know, uh, he advocates active government intervention uh, into the economy. Okay. He, hence, he espouses the, um, the uh, central bank of issue. He, uh, like, you know, the U.S. Federal Reserve, which is legalized counterfeiting, which issues currency, which, uh, you know, has legal tender status, which means people have to accept this currency. They, they can pay debts, you know, by means of this currency. And but the problem is um, this currency is infinite in quantity. And so that, it, you know, it um, generates uh, inflation. The more uh, currency that is issued from the central bank makes all of the currency that's already in, uh, in circulation makes it worth less, you see. Yes, I, I agree with all that, but, but quick question. How does the Austrian School of Economics deal with the problem of usury and the exponential mathematics that dictates that those with money, if they are allowed to use money to make money, suck all the money out of the system in an utterly parasitical way and completely destroy and bankrupt the 99% of hardworking people who are actually producing something? Okay, well, um, Mr. Barrett, you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely right with your basic observation. But what you're not, um, you know, considering is that there's a way you can treat that. See, in the first place, people need to make loans. Okay. If it just simply on an individual basis, just between you and me. All right. If I come up and ask you, uh, well, gosh, Mr. Barrett, I need $5. Can you lend me $5? And uh, you say, you know, sure, you know, but you have to pay me back, uh, you know, whatever, a certain percentage. And, uh, uh, and I, you know, may, may God strike me down if I would ever do such a thing. Well, um, OK, but the fact of the the fact remains that it's your freedom, according to our uh, Western um you know, system of law. Yeah, it's freedom, to, freedom, be, freedom, to, freedom to be satanic, freedom to, no. to, to, to <laughs> practice satanic usury. No, it's, it's, um, I'm commanded by God to go to war with you if you do that. Okay, what you're not thinking of is that there's such thing as bankruptcy laws. You see, that's uh, how the, the Jews, um, you know, got in. They would, uh, you know, they would um, practice this usury, but there's, there's a certain point at which, um, you know, it has to stop. There's limits to it by law, which we call bankruptcy laws. After a certain point, you can, you owe, you know, what you, uh, what you borrowed. But, uh, um, aside from, you know, some, a little something, a little penalty fee on top of that, no more. You see, that's what bankruptcy right, right, right. Laws. There's a problem here, which Hudson obviously would, if, let's say we bring Hudson on right now, he, and he's been on the show, by the way. He, he would say that what you're missing, Apple, is that the uh, wealthy group that is essentially using their money to make money and sucking all the wealth out of the system, that group, yeah, they will set up bankruptcy laws 
But then those laws will always be set up to maintain the tendency to suck all the wealth out of the system by means of, of usury or rents. That is, you know, char- charging money for something when you're not producing anything. And, and they will continue. You know, so, so there's no way that you're ever going to have uh, bankruptcy laws that are going to uh, remotely be an obstacle in the path of this rentier usury elite sucking all the value out of the system. Well, but history, history, uh, utterly destroys that um loans banking and loans they worked they've worked since uh the italian renaissance and you know the banking that arose uh during that time there were problems there too it's just that you got to realize that um at a certain point um the the bankruptcy law uh clicks in and um you know there's a limit put to uh, whatever penalty you may owe um, in addition to, you know, what you borrowed. See, that that's all. What the Jews did was they partnered with the, uh, in the, the middle, uh, the medieval uh, monarchs to extract money from, from the people. Okay. The Jews got it from the people. And then the monarchs, they got it from the Jews. And uh, for a good while, they kept these Jews in check. But, you know, with the French Revolution, well, actually, with the Reformation, you know, the, the Jews uh, were able to exploit the, uh, you know, strife between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants. And that's when they started getting strong. And that uh, eventuated to the French Revolution, where Jews, uh, you know, achieved um, legal um, uh, what was the word emancipation and right. now they had they had rights just like everyone else um, that everyone else had to respect and th- that's when their usury just uh, you know it just got out of hand as you describe but and the Jews have, have ruled ever since Ever since, uh, you know, the French Revolution, and even before that, they were exploiting the uh, strife between the Gentile, the Western European Gentiles, uh, Catholic versus Protestant. Well, let's fast forward to, to today. And I think Michael Hudson is on the side of those, including myself, who would argue that the geopolitical conflict that we're seeing right now that's about to break into a possible World War Three, essentially pits a Western rentier, usury, bankster elite, and frankly, I don't care how many of them are Jews and how many aren't, uh, that usurious Western elite is trying to conquer the world and impose its rule on the world through its neoliberalism, which will essentially funnel all of the wealth of the world into their coffers. Um, And they are at war with a bunch of nations, uh, the three most important being Russia, China, and Iran, that have strong enough central governments to keep their uh, billionaire uh, parasite uh, bankster financiers in check. And indeed, that's the crime of Putin, is that he got the oligarchs under control, jailed some, exiled others, may have killed a few. Uh, Likewise, the crime of the Chinese is that they keep their oligarchs on a very short leash. They will behead or they, they will execute their oligarchs if they are corrupt. And here in the U.S., of course, that's impossible. The oligarchs run everything. They own the entire system. They own the entire government. And in Iran, same thing. 
there's uh, the supreme leader in that branch of the Iranian government, the religious side, that will not allow the billionaire oligarchs to essentially buy up all political power. So what we have is a clash between one system, the U.S. Western system, that is allows oligarchs to just snap up all of the political power and exercise complete control of the entire society with no checks and balances whatsoever because they own the government. They own the mechanism of organized force. These yes, other countries yes. have a mechanism of organized force that keeps the oligarchs in check. So that's the war we're seeing right now. And as I see it, the oligarch side is antichrist, and the other side is essentially the part of humanity that opposes antichrist. Well, uh, I I don't disagree with you, Mr. Barrett. Uh, in you know, in general, okay, you, I think you're right. Um, it, on the one hand, you have the central bankers, and then on the other hand, you have all of those who resist, and that's uh, most of the people. And um, so, at the moment, um, Putin uh, is sticking up for those people against these. Um, you know, these central bankers and uh, the Chinese, they're they're uh, right along with them, too. They they want to keep their own uh, Chinese independence and their own, you know, Chinese identity. OK, but um, what what it really is, is the subjectivists and globalists who run the central banks, the central banks of issue. OK, and they want to put in this digitalized monetary system where that you know you have this uh, uh infinite currency um you know writ large i mean you know it's just r- raging and roaring and uh, uh against these uh these resistors and of course they have to have a centralized military in order to oppose uh the central bankers and they're quite a bit on the defense they have uh great difficulty in um, defining their own, you know, stand and, uh, um, you know, ideals, you know, philosophic ideals. But um, they know one thing, they they want to resist these dictators, these central bankers who, you know, they want to put in this digitalized uh, monetary system. Okay, and uh, so it's like subjectivists, these extreme subjectivists who want to um, introduce this bogus uh, monetary system because money is just gold and silver. Money, real money, has to be something of value. And, uh, I mean, brother, that's, that's the Islamic position, too. And uh, gold and silver, you know, precious metals, that's the only thing that can serve as money. You can have substitute forms of money uh, represented by paper, but uh, that paper, that's just currency. It's a substitute money. Uh, the real money is gold and silver. Okay. And uh, so these uh, central bankers, they want to uh, impose this uh, infinite currency system uh, against everyone else. And the Russians and the Chinese are resisting this because, mm-hmm. you know, they want to have their own system. They don't want to. You know, you be- I, I largely I agree with a lot of that, and I don't think Michael Hudson would really disagree that much with it either. Although he would have, uh, he, he, I'm sure he would disagree with the gold and silver part. But um, rather than you know having a big fight with him, I, you should recognize that mo- you're mostly, if not entirely, on the same side. You certainly are closer to his position than to the Western establishment position. 
Uh, well, Brian, I'm, I'm curious, how, how do you think the UFO issue fits into all this? Okay, Apo and I actually have a lot in common in our view of this New World Order threatened uh, takeover by these central bankster, you know, financier, yeah. usury creeps. Uh, so so are, are the UFOs going to save us, or are the UFOs on the side of the banksters? Are there some on each side? Uh, what, what does the UFO issue have to do with this? Well, I can com- comment on that, but this is Apollonian's first time, so I'm quite happy to let him talk. You know, I've done many shows before. Well, I would say there's good aliens and bad aliens. My my view on like Satanism is that there's actual sacrifices like blood sacrifices and baby sacrifices to reptilian aliens. And there's an economic exchange. Like they want the blood, they want the the lives in exchange for power to the worldly elite. And I think there are, are good aliens. That I think there's a Federation of Planets with the gray aliens at the front that are working for human advancement behind the, the scenes. The grays are the good guys. Yes, the greys are the good guys, and you can see in the media they have a bad rap. I think the reptilians who control our media are actually trying to commit character assassination against the greys. Everybody says the greys work for the reptilians. Well, I'd say that's not true. I think there's a small percentage, like the the reptilians might manufacture some greys, and even uh, people like Susie Hansen, who's been with the greys for her life, were told that uh, by the greys there is some an interloper species of greys. But most of them are actually good, but they get bad press. But if you look at, there's a, a survey by the Conscious and Contact Research Institute. They did a survey, 4,200 experiencers, and 85% said they had a positive experience with the grace, with a psychological transformation, or even a spiritual trans, transformation. So that's the majority of people have had good experiences with the grace, even though at first they might have been quite scared and not understanding what it was. Over time, they understood their relationship. What were they being kidnapped and like, uh, like messed with or operated on or whatever, uh, or not? Cause I mean, that, that when I've, I had, uh, yeah. what I have on, I had on the show David Jacobs, who wrote the book, The Threat, who claims that, uh, everybody who, you know, gets hypnotized and remembers of an abduction, whether or not they've ever heard any of this stuff before, they all tell the same story, which is basically being kidnapped. And he says, whoever, you know, if, some, if they're kidnapping us, they can't be good. Well, he, he, I'd say he's biased, like many of them had good experiences. Men actually state that David Jacobs misrepresented them, that he's basically negative on the thing and doesn't really uh, look at the good side. But many of those people that he experienced were asked, you know, if he could stop this relationship, would you? And over 80 percent said no. So I think him and uh, Bud Hawkins syndrome, cosmic Stockholm syndrome. Well, people have had good experiences for like uh, Jeff Selber here in Vancouver. He's just recently published a book. And Susie Hansen's quite well known with the book, The Dual Soul Connection. Had good experiences throughout their lives. And, you know, they've, they've, uh, re- their experience has been corroborated by others. It seems to be quite a consistent experience. But they are taken on craft and, you know, eggs are taken from women and sperm from men. But it's part of a larger program of creating hybrids. And they want to create a more... Uh, humanity 2.0, like Homo sapiens sapiens, I think the evidence is they're going to be replaced with a superior human of quantum dimensional consciousness, telepathy, more of a spiritual focus on life, more of the qualities of the gray aliens in human form. This program has been underway for about uh, over 100 years, and the governments are very familiar with this, and they don't want to talk about it because it and it's probably better that they don't. Like uh, humanity cannot handle the truth, so I actually agree with the government's slow disclosure like it, it would wow. threaten major religions like the abrahamic religions no it would certainly wouldn't threaten islam you know i've, I've done shows on that yeah. with zeshan shabazz and others about uh yeah god is lord of the worlds plural 
right? I mean, there's, there's yeah, Islam accepts ETs. That's right. You're right. Yeah, Islam accepts it. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So it's not a problem with us. If, if they have to have to have an excuse to keep it secret, don't use that. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so Apollonian, what do you what do you think of this UFO stuff you're hearing from Brian? Um, well, I would like to get into Ron Unz as. Oh, you want to yell at Ron Unz during the last? Week. Go for it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, Mr. Barrett, uh, as you know, um, the United States is dominated by these central bankers, and um, okay, so. And we call them globalists. Like uh, if you've uh, heard, uh, uh, Alex Jones is having a heck of a, a heck of a time defending these suits against him by these globalists who are trying to, uh, you know, they're trying to silence him like they're trying to silence all their opposition, like they're doing it with Julian Assange. Right. OK, and uh, now it's Alex Jones turn. They're suing him into oblivion. Uh, they're trying to anyway. And um, OK, so they're globalists. Right. And these globalists are the people who make use of the central banks. And um, that these consist of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateralists, the Bilderbergers and a new entity called the World Economic Forum. So, okay? so how is any of this Ron Unz's fault? Um, I'm not well. Um, hey, you only have two minutes, so you better you better get there. <laughs> okay. Um, well, anyway, um, the 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 globalists—they're behind the leftists and the present-day Democrats. The opposition is uh, the uh, Zionists, who are behind the Judeo-Christians. But they both get their money uh, from the central bank, ba- basically. Um, uh, Okay, so and the leftist atheists uh, are on uh, one side, and the Zionists and phony Judeo Christians are on the other. The, all of the other uh, political parties are, you know, minuscule. They're midgets compared to these two basic entities: Democrats versus Republicans. That's the charade they're playing: good cop, bad cop. Yeah, and there's some um, truth to all this, but, but where does lens come in? Unz is on the side of the globalists, the leftist atheists. That's yes. why he back. Yes, that's why he backs uh, uh, Hudson, Mike Hudson. Yeah, but who, he, his website has got a lot more people bank. on the right. His website yes. is, is way better. Yes, that's to the right. part of the deception. That's oh, uh, the way he gets. That's the way he gets his audience. Um, oh, and well, you, you really think that, that the leftists at the end's review are somehow are actually convincing all these right wing people? I don't see that at all. Well, that's because he Unz, um controls his comment section uh, with a very intensive uh, censorship. What? And, Compared to every place else I've ever seen, it, he has the, big, the biggest hands off policy I've ever heard of. That's I, I guarantee you, Mr. Mr. Barrett, that's totally false. Most of my uh, submissions, most of them have been deleted and censored. And I'm sure. Well, you sent me same. some samples, but all they were these like, you know, really just on and on and on ad hominem attacks on uns. So, yeah, I mean, if, it's like if, if you do that to say Gordon Duff of Veterans today, he'll probably censor you, too. And so will anybody else. If you do that enough to me on my website, I probably would censor you, too. I mean, the, you, you can't just lob long long-winded ad hominems at the person who's publishing the website. Okay, well, I disagree that, that, that with that characterization. Um, I offer, you know, um, I offer arguments. 
Okay, we're yeah, we're we're